Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 24. Well, Genesis 24 is uh, the longest chapter in Genesis. And so uh, what we're going to do here is uh, I'm going to read portions of it here. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stand now with me, if you would, in honor of God, if you're able to, as we read his word. But then I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to go ahead and have you uh, be seated while I read uh, the remainder parts that I'm going to read. And so we're here in Genesis 24, and uh, Sarah has just passed away in Genesis 23, and we read this in verse 1 of Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son Isaac from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master, and you can go ahead and be seated while I continue reading. So again, the servant is speak, is, has just finished speaking to the Lord, and verse 15, it says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jug on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Then the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is 
there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder in room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master and his faith. And as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He, and it's Laban, said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. And then the servant relates to Laban and the family all that's taken place, all that God has done to bring him here. And then we come down to verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver, of gold, and garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Berlaharoi and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and 
When she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my, my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we read your word, we too are comforted as we think about your sovereign hand over our lives and protection of us. And Father, this morning as as we prepare to partake of your supper, we we pray that you would help our hearts to be prepared uh, spiritually as, as we think about our relationships with one another, as we think about what we're proclaiming to be true in our lives as we partake of this supper, the things that we proclaim to be true and the things that we proclaim we are striving for. We await the return of your son, Jesus, and we pray this in in his name. Amen. There's an event planning website called Paint Night that apparently just released a survey on dating trends in the United States, and they found that it takes about five and a half years of dating to find your spouse, and not not only is it expensive in terms of time, but it costs about $20,000 of dating and on average to find your future spouse. The average date costs about $40, a little bit more than $40. And favorite activities of people on dating include things like going out to dinner and going to the movies and taking walks. They found that 75% of people would rather do an activity indoors than instead of outdoors on a date. And so those are just some of the, the findings of Paint Night, an event planning website and their survey on dating. You know, they also found, I read this list to my family, they also found some things that, that they found to be good dating behavior and bad dating behavior. So things that were good dating behavior included things like a good manners, attractive appearance, smile, a great personality, and a sense of humor. I read that list to my family, and I said, and that's why it took me less than five and a half years to convince your mother to marry me. And uh, Whitney responded, you have a good sense of humor? Like, question mark? Like, that's the thing? There's also a list of of bad dating behaviors, and things like bad manners, being rude, offensive, having bad breath, being too negative— uh, burping noises, being unattractive. And as I was reading this list, uh, the girls uh, mentioned to the boys in our family that perhaps their dating futures were imperiled. Uh, and then we got to the next part of the list, talks too much, uh, too much makeup, and some other things were said by people in the family. But those are, um, those are some, some Good dating behaviors, bad dating behaviors, and the cost of dating in our society today, the the way in which we go about finding a life partner. Now, what we're looking at this morning in Genesis 24 is not a passage on uh, dating, per se. It's it's not a a first series in a series entitled uh, Matchmaking God's Way. I mean, that's, that's not what we're talking about this morning, but let me kind of walk through my thinking about this passage and what's happening here to to help you understand what I want to talk about this morning. As we look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, there's something that comes across very clearly, and that is that, that God is in charge. 
God is in charge of this covenant that he's making with people, and he's in charge sovereignly of of bringing this covenant about. And not only is he sovereign, big picture about this this covenant and its coming to fruition, he's also sovereign over the relationships that are necessary to bring this covenant to fulfillment. So he promises a seed, a descendant of, of Eve, and he brings, he's going to bring that about in Genesis 12. He talks about the descendants of Abraham and how there's, there's coming an offspring who's going to, through whom the, the nations are going to be blessed. And so God is sovereign over the relationships that are necessary to bring that to fruition. He, he sovereignly protects that, that Abrahamic line. He, he makes sure that the descendants of Abraham are are continuing as he has promised that they would. And so God is sovereign over this covenant, and he's sovereign over the relationships within the covenant. We also see, as we look at these first five books of the Bible, that it is far better to be a willing participant in God's covenant plan than to be an unwilling participant. Moses fares a lot better than Pharaoh. Both are part of God's covenant plan, but Moses willingly, Pharaoh unwillingly. And now, that's kind of the big picture of the Pentateuch. God's bringing this covenant plan to fruition. He's sovereign over even the relationships that are necessary to bring that covenant plan to fruition. And now, we come to Genesis 24. And as I said earlier, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 24, we see the subject of marriage dealt with. The idea of a covenant partner who participates with someone as they pursue God's covenant plan together. And there are several family-like relationships that we're going to see dealt with in Genesis. And I think what God is is telling us here is that God is concerned with covenant partnerships. In fact, as we go through the Old Testament, as we go through the New Testament, and we see marriage talked about, we see that marriage always is to be a picture of, of God's relationship with his people. The relationship between husband and wife within the context of a marriage relationship is is always to serve as a picture between God and and his covenant people. For example, Isaiah 54, 5, God says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. You come to Jeremiah 3, and in Jeremiah 3, the prophet describes Faithfulness to God is like the faithlessness, I'm sorry, faithlessness to God is being like the faithlessness of an adulterous spouse. Ephesians 5, as it talks about the relationship between a a husband and wife, comes to this conclusion in verse 31, quoting Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, this relationship that exists between two human beings in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, that relationship is a, a picture of God's relationship with his people. That's, that's its purpose. And so God is concerned with how we enter into that relationship. Obviously, Obviously, the discussion of how to find a covenant partner, a husband or wife, is an important conversation, right? No matter where you are this morning. 
Uh, maybe you're a single person and you're kind of in that, that age where you're, you're thinking about finding a, a covenant partner, finding a husband or wife. And so obviously this is a very relevant message to you as you think about how God would have you go about that process. Maybe you're single this morning and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not in a stage of life where uh, I have a desire to be married or am capable of, of being married right now or it's not what God has called me to. And so I think this is an important message for you to consider as you think about how to counsel others. Maybe you're a very young person and, and you're just, you know, marriage is like something that old people do. But even still, I think it's good for you to think about how God would have you think about finding a covenant partner. Maybe you're uh, married and so you say, hey, you know, check that one off the list already. And so I think this is relevant to you as well as you think about the purpose that God has called you to and, and how you encourage others. And, ma- and maybe you're a parent this morning. Think, okay, how in the world, my, my, my kids are getting older, how, how do I encourage them? My kids are older. How do I encourage them in this, this, this pursuit? I think there are some very helpful things for us in this passage as we see God sovereignly providing a, a covenant partner for Isaac. And really, that's, that's the main idea that I want you to grasp this morning, is that it's God. It's God who provides covenant partners for his covenant people. It's God who provides covenant partners for his covenant people. And we're going to see several things here as we go through this text that I think will encourage you this morning. Let's start with this. Let's look at the purpose of a covenant partner here in the first nine verses of 24. The the purpose of a covenant partner. And and look what happens here. Look at your text. You have Abraham. And remember, Sarah has just died in the last chapter. And Abraham is getting old. And he recognizes, look, God has made these promises to me. And I have a responsibility to make sure that Isaac is prepared. That Isaac is well taken care of and that he can continue to pursue this covenant that God has made with us. This covenant that I'm supposed to be the the father of many nations and the nations are supposed to be blessed through me. Uh, For this to take place, Isaac's going to need a wife. And so he calls a a servant over to him. And the text here describes this servant as his most faithful servant, his oldest servant. And perhaps uh, this is the same servant from Genesis 15, uh, Eleazar, we're not sure who it is, but perhaps it's that guy. It certainly fits his description. And Abraham looks at Eliezer, says, look, or whoever it is, and says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to make this oath with me that you will find a wife for Isaac, go back to where I came from, back to my people, find a wife for her, and bring her back to Isaac to continue this, this covenant line. And the servant looks at Abraham, and in verse 5, he says, well, uh, one problem, uh, before I make this very solemn oath to you, I, I need to make sure I understand the terms. Uh, what if she says no, right? What if I go all the way over there, I find this, uh, find this, this woman and say, you know, explain everything to her and say, now let's go back, and she says no. What do I do then? Am I still bound under this oath? I mean, do I like, you know, do I kidnap her? Do we you know, run off on the camels? Uh, do I take Isaac? His first inclination is, do I take Isaac back there? What do I do? I, I want to I fulfill this oath, but I, I need to know the terms. And so Abraham says, look, here's the deal. And as Abraham responds, he says, there's, there's two huge things, two huge things that we need to keep in mind. One, I don't want Isaac going back there. Two, I, I don't want him marrying anyone here. I don't want him marrying anyone here. I don't want him going back there. Those are, those are two huge things to keep in mind. Now, why does he feel that way? Well, because he understands the covenant that God has made with him. 
Genesis 9, Noah cursed the, the line of Canaan, the people who were living in the land that Abraham was now. And Abraham didn't want to imperil the covenant promises of God by, by intermarrying with the Canaanites. In Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that, this, that the Canaanites' iniquity would be continuing to, to, to build up over the next hundreds of years. And Deuteronomy 7, hundreds of years later, God would say through Moses, don't intermarry with the people of Canaan giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Uh, 1 Corinthians, the same message is applied to us. A wife is to, to if, she, if her husband's dies, she's to remarry, but to remarry to, to a believer. We see that throughout the New Testament as well. And in Genesis, uh, Abraham's grandson will marry Canaanite women and it will make life hard and bitter, the text says, for his parents. So Abraham says, look, I, by no means take Isaac away from the promised land and, and by no means allow him to marry from people within this land because it imperils the covenant. I, I don't want this, this covenant to be imperiled. If the purpose of this, this union is to perpetuate this covenant relationship with God, if this union is to be a picture of God's relationship with his people, it needs to be the right person. And he takes great confidence in, in God's, God's provision. Look what he says. He says in verse 7, Yahweh, who took me, God was in charge of this, who took me from my father's house and, and, and swore all these things to me, he'll send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But if, if I'm wrong, she's not willing, you're free from the oath. And so the, ervent, the, the servant swears the oath. I think it's very important as we think about finding a covenant partner to keep in mind the purpose of a covenant partner. Abraham just doesn't want to get some wife for Isaac so they can have a bunch of grandsons and granddaughters. Continue the, the promise line. Martin Luther, after he left the monastery, stopped, stopped being a monk, got married. He married a, a woman named uh, Catherine von Bora. And, uh, he said some very funny things about his wife, whom he called Katie. He said, one time he said, I would not trade my Katie for France or for Venice because God has given her to me. And besides, other women have worse faults. So he started off strong. He says, all my life, I, as patience, I have to pay, have patience with the Pope, with the heretics, with Katie. You know. In a letter to, to someone else as he's talking about why he married, he said, I married to, to please my father and to spite the Pope and the devil, you know. I think we can go a little deeper as we think about purpose, right? And Luther would write good things other places about marriage. But, but marriage isn't just about pleasing our parents. It's not just about having a companion. It's not just about uh, having someone to, to spend time with. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. The purpose, the purpose of a covenant partnership is to display God's covenant love for his people. That's the purpose. One of the key purposes. We have a, a spouse, we, we enter into this relationship with a desire to, to show, to display in a very vivid way, God's covenant love for his people. In other words, as I love my wife, as my wife loves me, it, it, it's a display for others to see how God loves his church and how the church loves Christ. 
Now, what does this mean? What well, means for those of us who are married, we have, we have to pursue this purpose. You know, Paul, again, in Ephesians 5 would say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, you come down to verse 33. Each one of you must love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her, her husband. And so what this means for those of us who are married is that we have to understand, okay, this is what the purpose of marriage is. The purpose of getting married isn't to have someone that meets my needs. The purpose of getting married isn't just so that I can you know, have a tax write-off or something. The, the purpose of this relationship is to be a, a vivid display of God's love for his church, Christ's love for his church, the church's love for Christ. And by the way, this is true. I think this is an important application as well. This is, this is true even in a marriage where there are struggles, right? Maybe you think this morning, boy, I'm, I'm in this relationship, this marriage relationship where the other party is absolutely 100% not committed to this. This is still what we pursue, and God's love, you know, God dealt with, God dealt with a, a spouse in a, in a sense, as it's described in Scripture, who was not pursuing him. What does this mean for single people, this principle? What it means is, is you shouldn't compromise on, on what this purpose is, right? It's better to not marry. It's better to not marry than to pursue a covenant relationship with someone who will not fulfill this purpose. The purpose of having a covenant partner, we see here, is to display God's covenant love for his people. This marriage relationship that Isaac is entering into is in the, is in the context of covenant people pursuing a covenant God. Here, here's the second thing I want us to think about. The second thing I want us to think about is the search for a covenant partner. And, and there's a couple things that I, I want you to see here in verses 10 through 28. We won't read the, the entire uh, portion again, but there's four things that I want you to see about this, this search as, as God providentially guides the servant in, 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 this, in this task. First of all, we see that the servant establishes godly criteria. Look what happens there in verses 10 through 14. He goes, and the, the travel time is greatly truncated, right? He goes to Mesopotamia, he arrives there in the city, and, and he has the, the camels kneel, and he, he prays this prayer. And the, notice what the, the content of the prayer is. He says, please, he talks, he says, O Lord Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love, faithful love, kind love to my master. And the, the prayer isn't just for some random sign. He says, it's not saying, hey God, um, I want to find this woman. If you could just have her wear like a, a yellow flower in her hair, or, you know, if she could just be like, I want her to be, I want her to like walk like this, you know, just some sort of sign that I know this is the... No, that's not the sign that he asks for. What he's asking for is some sort of vivid manifestation of her character. He says this. Let her do this, verse 14. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink. Let her say, drink and I will also water your camels. And let that be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. And so he's, he's looking at where he is locationally, he's, he sat down at this well, and he says, okay, um, you know, there's all these, these people here. Allow it to be a person who is willing to not just show a little bit of hospitality, but, but above and beyond abundant hospitality. It was expected, perhaps, that a person who was asked for water would be granted it. You know, that's a code of hospitality. You show kindness to strangers. But the idea of having a, a social obligation to care for the animals of a stranger, that was beyond what would be expected. 
So he's establishing this, this godly criteria. He wants a, a woman who has the, the character necessary to be a good covenant partner for Isaac. And then what does he do next? He, number two here, observes the, her character. You see this in verses 15 through 21. Verse 15, he, he's, he hasn't even finished speaking. Again, you see here God's sovereign control in this. And Rebecca shows up. And Rebecca, the narrator tells us right away, Rebecca's the right person in terms of family relationship. She is Abraham's great niece. And this, this young woman is, is attractive. She's, she's this uh, beautiful woman. She is a, a pure woman. And she goes down to the spring. She fills her jar and the servant goes to meet her and he, he makes this request, please give me, and he just says, a little bit of water. And, and what does she do? She says, drink. And she, I, I, love, I love her emotions here. She, she quickly lets down her jar and, and he allows him to, to drink not just a little bit, but all that he would want. And he, she finishes giving her a drink. She says, hey, you know what? I'm going to draw water for your camels also until they've finished drinking. And again, look at verse 20. It's, it's quick. She quickly empties her jar into the trough. She runs again to the well to draw water. She is a, a fast mover here, right? And he just observes this. He observes her character. She's hospitable. She's faithful in a way that a covenant partner needs to be. Think about what she's doing here. According to to one commentator here, a camel can consume 25 gallons of water in 10 minutes. This well would have been like this, this large indention, kind of, and there would be some steps to go down to this, this body of water, and she would have had like a, a three-gallon jar, and so she would have run down the steps, grabbed the water, and come back up. Basically, this would have taken her about an hour and a half or two hours of, of really difficult work, and that's what she's doing, and she's not doing it begrudgingly. She's doing it quickly. It kind of reminded me of, of, as I was reading this and thinking about this, I had, I had noticed that the quick nature of her movements. I was thinking about Whitney, you know, I was thinking about my wife in relationship uh, to, to Rebecca here, and, you know, Whitney is a, a fast mover. Yesterday, we were working on our, our taxes, and had all these, these forms lined out, and I'm kind of a slow mover, and I'm looking at all these things, and I, I, I had them all in different piles. I said, okay, so Whitney, I kind of looked up, her, I said, Whitney, what we need to do, and I looked down, I said, we need to move slowly, and when I looked back up, everything was in an envelope, addressed, stamped, and she had found some missing forms. I mean, it was just quick, quick, quick. I said, never mind, you know. She's fast. Rebecca here is, is fast. She, she understands what, what needs to be done, and she does it. She has this heart of hospitality and care. And the servant observes this. He looks. Now, let me just say one word here, too. As you think about establishing a, a godly criteria for a covenant partner and observing people, here's, here's the danger, right? Uh, the danger can be the danger can be some unrealistic expectations. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to establish godly criteria. And we think, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you're a woman. You think, okay, I'm, I'm looking for a man that is a, is a hard, is diligent, that loves the Lord and displays that love for the Lord by, like, praying for two hours a day, and he treats his mother well, and he never says a kind, an unkind word to strangers and has perfect patience and loves children and is very handsome. I mean, she has this list, right? And then she encounters reality, right? Can't find that list. That list can't match up. Now think about if you had been able to, to time travel and, and, and see Whitney 17 years ago, and, and she, she's getting ready to 
be married to this guy, Daniel, and she had this ideal list, and then there was this, you know, what, what does she do with that? What does she do with that? I think, I think what we say here is, okay, we're not looking for this, this, this perfection. Rebecca has some flaws. We're going to see her flaws come out in, in, in future chapter. But what we see this is we see, we're talking here about, as we think about criteria, we're thinking about a trajectory, right? We're not talking about arrival at the ideal. We're talking about someone who is, who is pursuing a trajectory towards the ideal. If this person manifests humility when confronted with their sin. There's a recognition of sin. There's ability to, to repent. There's a, a plan for spiritual maturing. There's a Christ-centered focus to their thoughts and their life. And then there's a third thing we see here. There's not only is there establishing the criteria, then observing the criteria and the characteristics, there's, there's confirming fitness. The servant here, as he's observing Rebecca at work, the camel's finished drinking. He gives her these, these gifts and he asks who you are and she tells him who she is. She, she, he finds out her relationship to Abraham and and who she is has been confirmed. She's part of the family that the servant was told to go and find. He confirms that she is the person she needs to be. There's a, there's, sometimes as we think about pursuing a covenant partner, what happens sometimes is we, we find a person who's a nice person, but perhaps isn't the person that God has planned for us, Right? There's some providential circumstances that if those things don't align and they're not confirmed by the Lord in his providential hand, this isn't a relationship that's meant to be. And then finally, there's, throughout this, this section, we see a, a trusting in God's leading. There's this realization that the, the servant has that his master and the girl's grandfather are brothers, and she, he recognizes the various ways that God's sovereignty has been displayed, that God has appointed this to take place, and there is a response of worship on his part, right? There's a response of worship. He says in verse, 20, says in verse 26, he worshiped the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love. The woman runs. Again, she's fast. That Rebecca, she's fast. She runs to tell her brother and mother what's taken place. Here's the principle. Here's the principle that I think we see here. The search for a covenant partner means looking for someone who's able to model God's covenant love for his people. As you think about what you're pursuing, remember the purpose of marriage is to, to, to serve as this, this uh, relationship that displays God's covenant love for his people. And so as you are a, a person pursuing a marriage relationship or you're counseling someone who's pursuing a marriage relationship, what are you counseling them toward? You're counseling them to search for a covenant partner who is able to model God's covenant love for his people. If this person doesn't have the capability to pursue the relationship that God has called you to pursue in a covenant relationship, to pursue a relationship that resembles Christ's love for his church and church's love for Christ, then that's not the person you need to be pursuing if they, if they don't have that ability. The search for a covenant partner means looking for someone thinking about the characteristics of a person who's going to be a a good covenant partner, biblically thinking through those and looking for someone who's able to model God's covenant love for his people. That's what you're searching for. Here's the third thing. Uh, The confirmation of a covenant partner. The confirmation of a covenant partner. Now, I'm not going to read all of verses 29 through 61, but 
Um, there's a reason why Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and it's because of what happens here in these verses. What happens in these verses? The servant is obviously very excited about what's taken place, and so he, he goes, and he goes to this, uh, this home, to Rebecca's home, and her brother Laban, we're going to encounter more of Laban as we go through Genesis. Laban, uh, from the first time we see him, we see him as a person who is uh, attracted by wealth. He sees the bracelets, he sees the gifts, and he thinks, we need to take care of this guy. And so he goes, he brings the guy in. Oh, blessed of the Lord, he calls him while he's down outside. I've prepared a place. And he brings him in. And food is set before the servant to eat. But the servant says, I'm not going to eat until I have said what I have to say. And Laban says, speak on. And then the servant begins to relay the things that have happened to bring him to the point that everyone finds themselves at at the moment that he's speaking, right? So he goes through, and what does he talk about? He talks about God. God has greatly blessed my master. My master has become great. He has a son. And everything that he has belongs to this son. He talks about how the master made him, him swear. And by the way, um, the, the servant, he, he repeats almost verbatim everything that, that happened. He's not a fool, though. He, he doesn't talk about how God called Abraham out of that land, and he doesn't mention how Abraham said, no way are you to ever go back there. He's, he's polite, right? And so he, he relates these things, but he doesn't mention that. And he talks about all the things that God has done, how Yahweh was to go before him, how the, God's angel would be with him and he would prosper. He, he talks about how he prayed to Yahweh God and how God answered that prayer. He talks about how he worshiped God and And he relates all these things, and then you come to verse 50. And Laban and Bethuel, Rebecca's family here, they answer, and they said, look, this is from God. The the tension in the story has been, will Rebecca go with the servant back to Isaac? And one of the barriers to her going is, what her family will say, and what does her family say? As, as the whole situation, all the circumstances are laid out before them, what do they say? This is of God. We, we can't say good or bad about this. This is it's an expression that means, look, this, this is from God. It's, it's already been determined. They recognize God's providential hand in this. It goes on. goes on. They say okay, and then there's a discussion, of, you know, there's gifts given, and there's a discussion about when to leave. And, and then uh, the, the last person that, that's called to determine what they're going to do is Rebecca. You come to verse 58. They call to Rebecca, are you going to go now? And she says, in the Hebrew, it's, it's beautifully succinct. Basically, I'm going. going. She confirms God's hand in this. There's a confirmation through circumstance. There's a confirmation by the family, there's a confirmation by the individuals involved that, that this is part of, of God's plan. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. The confirmation of a covenant partner occurs as those with spiritual maturity or oversight affirm God's direction. I believe what we see in, in Scripture is that, that the confirmation of a covenant partner occurs as people in in positions of spiritual maturity or spiritual oversight of an individual affirm God's blessing on a marriage. I can remember my 
my first real uh, outing with Whitney, we were going to go out to, to a park, and, and uh, she hadn't met my, my parents yet, and so she comes over to the house, and we're, we're uh, kind of packing up sandwiches and stuff, and uh, Whitney, you know, just again, kind of moving around the kitchen, and, and uh, my, my mom looks at her, and my dad looks at her, and my, you, know, you can see like a little bit of surprise on my dad's face, like, I didn't know this guy had it in him, you know, and then my mom kind of mouths, you know, kind of, and then she pulls me aside later, she goes, this girl is amazing, right? And then uh, throughout our relationship, my parents and people, other spiritually mature people in my life, uh, confirmed the relationship or offered suggestions about that relationship. Now, her parents had some suggestions too, um, and we had to follow those, and they weren't, I would, I would say they were, they were less excited than my parents, to put it nicely. Um, but uh, God brought uh, them around as well and me around, you know. Look, the, the point is this. Um, there are some there are some people in our lives who have been tasked by God to, to speak into our life. And what happens in this situation is the people in Rebecca's life say, yeah, this, this is, Rebecca, if, if you're good with this, this seems to be of the Lord. And God providentially brings people around Rebecca who say, yeah, this, this is a good thing. And for a young person, what I believe this means is that God has placed people in your life to confirm or help shape what God's plan is for you. And, and, and that God has put not only um, spiritual leaders, but, but parents and other mature people in your life who've been entrusted with your spiritual care. And if, if they can't see God's hand at work in a relationship that you're pursuing, my encouragement would be to step back. If the people who've been entrusted with your spiritual care can't see God's hand at work in this relationship— you need to step back because if you think that you are objective, you are delusional, right? You may be not objective and right, but if you think you're simply an objective observer in, in this relationship that you're pursuing, you're delusional. We all are, right? We need people that God has placed in our life to confirm God's leading in our life, not just in this, but in so many areas as we pursue obedience, we need people around us who say, you know, do, do we have the character that we need to have to, to be in, engaged in a, in a covenant relationship? Are the circumstances in which I find myself appropriate for entering into a covenant relationship? Do I have the means to support a family? Do I have the, the, um, the things together that are necessary to, to lead spiritually? If I'm uh, to be a husband, for example, when those been entrusted with your spiritual care, see God's hand at work in a potential spouse. That's a powerful confirmation of his direction. And the reverse is true. If the people who are in positions of spiritual responsibility of your life can't see that, that's a powerful warning as well. Here's the last thing that I want us to see. last thing I want us to see is the joy of a covenant partner. The joy of a covenant partner. As we see Isaac and Rebecca meet one another, it's, it's this beautiful picture in verses 62 through 67, right? He looks up. She looks up. There's this excitement in the relationship as it, as it comes to fruition. And it says, as you close the chapter here, it's very discreet. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He delighted in her. Here, here's the principle. 
The joy of a covenant partner is the fullest expression of the beauty of God's relationship with his people. The purpose of a marriage relationship is to, to serve as this picture of, of what it looks like for God to love his, his church and for the church to love Christ. And as we see in a marriage relationship joy and delight in one another, then in that moment where there's delight in one another as husband and wife, as, as there's joy and delight in one another, there is the fullest expression of the beauty of God's relationship with his people. That's what we're pursuing, delight in one another, oneness in our marriage relationship. We're striving to fulfill the purpose for which marriage was created in our lives and as we counsel and encourage others. Now, there's barriers to this, right? There's barriers. There's selfishness. Our temptation is to pursue what brings us pleasure as opposed to what causes the other spouse delight. There's temptations to be disdainful toward one another, to pursue, um, to pursue other relationships instead of our spouse. Some of us may struggle to do that with just, just friends or even perhaps uh, an illicit relationship. So we look at the think about the digital age, it can be a great temptation to pursue other relationships digitally or get involved in, in things uh, entertainment-wise or electronically that are just just pursuing things other than our spouse. There are barriers to this joy of delight in relationship that God has called us to. Our call by God is to grow, to serve one another, to pursue one another, to find the things that delight. For those of us that are married, that's the task that God has given us. For those of us who are single, it's, our, it's what we encourage one another who are pursuing marriage to think about. For those of us who are thinking about marriage, it's the goal that we're striving for. Here's what the writer of Proverbs would say in Proverbs 5. Here's the idea of delight in pursuing spouse and not pursuing others. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be. And he's talking about the beauty of the marriage relationship. Let, let this be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice and the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman or embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The idea here is that there is to be, there are so many things that can cause us as, as husbands and wives to pursue something other than our spouse. And, and God's call on us constantly is to pursue delight in one another. We can only do that as we model a relationship that Christ and his church have. So much more here that we could, could think about. Let me, let me close with, with this thought. God's call on us, as we think about human relationships, is, is to model his covenant love. God sovereignly provides covenant relationships to model his covenant love. Let me ask uh, now if, if the men who are going to be uh, passing out the elements of communion, if you guys would just begin to, to go to those and just go ahead and begin passing that out. Don't, don't wait for me to pray. Just go ahead and as, as you uh, men who are uh, passing out the elements, go ahead and get to that and just, just go ahead and start passing them out and so we can be uh, passing those out as, as I finish talking here. And as you, as you get your 
uh, communion. Uh, just a reminder, you don't need to be a, a member of Bethany Community Church to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. We do ask that you be a, a part of a church, encourage you to be a part of a church, and maybe you're pursuing that and, and haven't done that yet. But we encourage you to be a part of a church. We, of course, would say that you need to be a believer, that you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I'd like us to do as we meditate and prepare for the Lord's Supper. First of all, for those of us uh, who are are single and are single thinking about pursuing marriage, my encouragement to you would be to commit to the Lord to pursue the purpose for covenant love. You say, okay, if I am pursuing or thinking in the future about pursuing a covenant partner, I'm going to do it according to God's plan to fulfill his purpose and to, to meditate upon that and think about that. For those of us uh, who are single and, and maybe not in a situation where we're pursuing marriage, that we would commit uh, to praying for our relationships and that we would uh, cling to Christ as our, our love. And for those of us who are married, that we would commit afresh in our hearts, uh, confessing those things that have caused us to not delight in our spouse and to confess again uh, to God our desire, uh, ask for forgiveness, and then, and then plead with God to help us pursue faithfully uh, his plan for our marriages, that we would delight in our spouses, love them, pursue them for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper that you would help us in that process, help us to meditate on that even now as we think about your great love for us. Help, help marriages in our church and the pursuit of marriages in our church to reveal your love for your people. And we pray this in your name.